Well, good morning. You know, to at least some degree, our self-perception is determined by those with whom we surround ourselves. Here's what I mean. If If you hang out mostly with first graders, you're going to begin to believe that you're fairly tall. (laughs) That you know the answers to pretty much everything. But you are extremely old. Then again, if you work in a veteran's home, you're going to become convinced that you are fresh and young and rather unsullied by this life, inexperienced in the things of this world. Because of who you surround yourself with. If you take a mission trip to Mexico or to India, you're going to come home thinking, how did I end up so wealthy? Or if you take a drive around Beverly Hills, you're going to wonder how did I get to be so poor? Yeah, That's how we work. It's, it's how we function. And so we find it as well Uh, to be true that if we are at all aware of everything that is going on out there in this world in which we live, we pretty quickly begin to see ourselves as, well, rather outstanding citizens, exemplary in so many ways, Uh, you know, extraordinarily moral and honest, uh, incredibly reasonable, quite decent as human beings go. And it will be hard not to begin to feel more than just a little bit proud of who we are and how it is that we've chosen to live our lives. That's what will happen if we compare ourselves to the world all around us. In fact, very easily, we will find ourselves being pulled into a deception as to the reality of our own character. Uh, Simply by comparing ourselves to others rather than comparing ourselves and our living to the one place that we should be making a comparison, which is to the word of God. This is the dynamic that the Apostle Paul talks about in in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. There he says this, it is not the one commending himself who is approved. He says "It it isn't that you become approved by approving of yourself, but rather, he says, but the one the Lord commends. That's what matters. It doesn't matter if you're impressed with who you are. It doesn't matter if you approve of who you are. What Paul says is what matters is what God thinks. Being approved means nothing unless, of course, that approval is God's approval. And here's why. God's the only one who's qualified to to really effectively and accurately examine us and to, well, judge us. He's the only one who can see the reality of who we are. 
Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He, he says this, don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, because here's what the Lord is going to do. He says, he will both bring to light that which is hidden in darkness, and he will reveal the intentions of the heart. Mm, that's different than how I judge myself. Now, now when I judge you, I judge you off of the reality of what you do. When I judge myself, it's I judge off of the good intentions I had, not the reality that I did. When I judge you, it's off your worst day. When I judge me, it's off my best day. Because that's how we are. But what Scripture says is the judgment that counts is the judgment that will come on that day when God, who will reveal everything that is hidden in darkness, who will see those things that, that we can't even see about ourselves when he makes judgment. That's the judgment that counts. You know, it's this very dynamic that Jesus is addressing in our passage this morning. So will you do this? Will you grab your Bible and open up to Luke chapter 18? Luke 18, we're gonna look at verses nine through 17 this morning. I'd love for you to follow along in the word. I'm going to read the passage for us, and so I'm going to invite you to stand out of respect for the word of God. Um, you can follow along. I'll read it. Luke chapter 18. We're going to pick up in verse 9 there. Luke is saying about Jesus. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. People were bringing infants to him so that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Jesus, however, invited them. Let the little children come to me and don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Let's pray. Father, we depend upon you to speak to us this morning in a way that, that we'll hear. Lord, we, we have such a hard time when it comes to looking at ourselves and seeing anything accurately. And I pray that you would help us this morning to look at what your word says and to see ourselves 
truly in light of it. I'd work in this time, speak to us, and allow us the ability to respond to you in the midst of it. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You and I living in this uh, great area that we live in, we find ourselves living within a subculture, a, a region where self-sufficiency and, and personal sovereignty and, and independence, it, those are our highest virtues. It, those are really the things that we consider to be the, the highest achievements of life. And those are very good and valuable things when they are kept within their proper context. But what we've got to understand is that when it comes to standing before God, when we come to that moment when we will stand before God, self-sufficiency, personal sovereignty, independence will never gain us anything except failure. I beat this drum fairly regularly because it's, it's a part of the gospel message. We've got to understand that there is nothing that we can do for ourselves that will save us. We've got to understand that if, if we maintain our personal sovereignty, that we are in charge of ourselves and we don't bend our knee to anyone, that 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 will leave us alienated from God. We've got to understand that we were not created to be independent from God, but rather to be in a relationship with him where we are very much dependent upon him. You see, when, when we try to fix it ourselves, when we try to keep God at arm's length, that truly is the definition of sin. It is a separation between us and our God. That, that's what Paul talks about in, in Romans chapter 3, uh, the fact that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Hey, this is a situation that, that, that affects every last one of us. Paul says all have sinned, all of us. This is, this is the condition of our hearts. And he says, we've fallen short. We haven't measured up. We don't meet the standard when we stand before God. Even those who, who we would admit are comparatively good people, they're, they're better than us, yet what we've got to understand is they don't meet the standard either. Isaiah explains it this way in Isaiah 64. He says, all of us have become like something unclean. And we get that, don't we? We have all experienced things in life. We have all fallen into sin. And, and we have had that experience of really understanding, I don't meet the measurement. I, I don't measure up. I, I have failed. Yet what we've got to understand is, that, is what Isaiah goes on to say. He says, and all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. Isaiah says that stuff that, that we are so convinced is going to impress God, that stuff that we are so convinced is going to meet with his approval, is going to convince him that we are worthy of his love. All of that stuff, Isaiah says, 
is like a polluted garment. It's no better. It's no better. You see, when we stand before God, we will find that we wither up like a leaf, just like Isaiah says, because our iniquities carry us away like the wind. That is our state, friends. We are guilty. We are sinners, all of us, without exception. And that is why we need the grace of God. That, that is why we need his forgiveness. And that is why he has offered it to us. The, that's why Jesus came. Jesus is the answer to our sin. And that's why Jesus said in, in John 14, 6, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. He is the answer. He is the only way that we can come to the Father. Jesus says, no one can come to the Father except through me. That's why Paul confirms in, in the, his letter to the Ephesian church it, that you and I, we can't contribute anything to our salvation. He says this, you are saved by grace through faith. It's by grace. It's by the graciousness of God that we are saved. How does that work? By, by putting our faith in Christ. And so maybe you think, well, I've got my faith. I can take credit for my faith. I have chosen to put my faith in Jesus. It, Paul cuts us off there too. He says, that's a gift of God. That's not your works. That's not your accomplishment, but that too is the gift that God has given. Well, we've got to understand, friends, we don't deserve the grace of God and we can't earn the grace of God. We should understand too that that dynamic right there, that's a gift. That is a burden lifted off our shoulders. You don't have to be good enough to get God's grace. You don't have to somehow convince God that you are worthy of his forgiveness. You don't have to change or get your act together in order to convince God to save you. No, that's backwards. We change because he saved us. We, we respond to his mercy and grace. That's how it works. That's, that's the gospel message. So understand this. If you have not ever surrendered yourself to the Savior, if you have not received forgiveness from Jesus, understand this. The message for you here today is that you must. It is your only hope. Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ, surrender the control of your life, and be forgiven. Turn to Christ. Oh, most of us, we know this message. We, we understand this. We've embraced it. We have put our faith in Christ. And so for us, the message today, the message for us is that we've got to remember this. We've got to remember the basis of our salvation. We've got to remember how and why and by whom we are saved. And it isn't by us. It isn't because of us. 
but it's because of the goodness and the mercy of our Savior. Well, let's begin to look at our passage. Verse 9, Luke tells us that Jesus tells this story, this parable to some, and listen to how he describes them, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They looked at themselves and they decided, you know what, I'm doing this right. I am doing this the way it's supposed to be done. And they looked at others and they looked down upon them. So Jesus tells this story for those who have become a little bit overly impressed uh, with just how different they are from the world around them and who have fallen into the trap of looking down on others, thinking that somehow in some way they are performing better. They are showing that they are more deserving, more worthy of, of salvation or of God's approval or of God's blessings. Notice there that there are two problems here. First, there is a problem with their self-evaluation. They have a wrong impression of self. They see themselves as being good or relatively good. Second, there's a problem in that they have a condescending view of others as being below them, as being less deserving than them. I think most of us would, would look at that and think, well, I'm glad I'm not that way. You know, th th that just isn't an issue for me. I mean, after all, I am so aware of my need for God's grace. And that's good. It is a very good thing to be aware of the fact that we are desperately in need of God's grace. But you know what? we can be aware of our need for God's grace and still look down on those who just don't seem to get it the way that we get it. Isn't that true? Stop for a minute. Stop for a minute. And I want you to think about how do you see others? How do you view others? How do you view those who, who disagree with you politically? Are they less than? How do you view those who who disagree with you on moral issues, who are, who are living out their lives in every way, in, in absolute opposition to everything that you hold sacred. Are they less than? I think this is the hardest one. How do you view those who claim to be followers of Christ but who don't hold to the same convictions that you hold to. How do you view them? You know what Jesus says here is something that I think all of us need to seriously take to heart. Look at, look at verse 10. Jesus said, there were two men who went up to the temple to pray. This is his story. This is the story he tells he says, one was a Pharisee, a religious leader, a very religious person. The other was a tax collector, someone who had utterly rejected the things of God and the, and the spiritual life and become a betrayer of their own country. The Pharisee was standing and praying, Jesus says, like this about himself. 
God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of everything I get. Kind of makes you want to stop right now and thank God that you're not like that Pharisee, <laughs> which would make you just like him. It's easy, isn't it, to look at, at what this man prays and, and to see problems there? It's just problems all over the place. I mean, this guy, he, he is not asking God for forgiveness. No, no, really, he's reminding God why it is he doesn't really need forgiveness. He's not appealing to, to God's great grace and mercy. No, he is declaring for, for everyone to hear and to witness to his own great goodness and, and purity and generate, generosity and dedication. He wants everyone to know just how superior he is. I think it's interesting that in this story, it, we see both of these men, in, in a sense, standing apart from the crowd, but for very different reasons. It, you know, the, the tax collector, he's standing apart as simply because he sees himself as unworthy, where the Pharisee seems to be kind of distancing himself from everyone else. Why? Because they are unworthy. He is above and he is better than they are. And what's confusing is that, well, in a sense, the Pharisee was right. He was living different. He was living better than, than most of those around him. He was living a life of righteousness. He followed the law. He did what he was supposed to do. In fact, he did more than what he was supposed to do. You know, he fasted more often than the law said you had to fast, and he tithed more than what the law required you to tithe. He went above and beyond. He was all in. Maybe you can relate. You know, honestly, these days, it's not too hard to live your life in a way that is morally superior, not only to the culture in which we live in general, but to the, cult the culture of the church in general. It's not too difficult to take Scripture more seriously than most of the church takes it. It's not too difficult to live your life to a standard of holiness that is above and beyond what most of the church bothers to deal with. We've got to be careful, though. We've got to be careful that we don't become too terribly impressed with the fact that we are living different from those who are around us. Hey, we should be living different from those who are around us. But what we've got to realize, what we've got to keep in mind is what the reason is for the difference that is evident in our lives. It's the grace of God. It's the grace of God. It's not our, our moral fortitude Consider how Paul explains it in 1 Timothy chapter 1. There Paul explains the goodness, the passion for Christ, the righteousness that was just so evident in his life. Listen to what Paul says. He says, the grace of our Lord overflowed. 
says, man, God just dumped a load of grace on me. It just overflowed and overwhelmed him. Along with the the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Then he says this. You want to know something that's super true? He says, you want to know a a saying that is trustworthy and, and deserving of full acceptance? Here it is. Paul says, if you want to know something that's true, this is what it is. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst one. Paul says, listen, you want to know it's true? Jesus came to save messed up people, and there is no one who is more messed up than me. He says, but I received mercy for this reason. He says, here's why God did it. So that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Basically, what Paul says is that God saved and sanctified him just to prove that it could be done, just to prove that there was no one who was too far gone. There was no one who was too bad off that if God could save Paul, then you could know for sure that God could save anyone. Paul says, don't think that the life that I'm living is a reflection of who I am. It's a reflection of who my Savior is. Because I was a mess, and he saved me. One last thing before we move on. Do you ever listen to yourself pray? I mean, we we listen to this Pharisee pray, and I begin to think, maybe I should listen to myself pray occasionally, because this guy sounds awful. Do I sound like that? I mean, when I pray, am I talking to God, or am I talking to the other people in the room? Or, Or am I talking to myself? Who am I really talking to when I pray? And when I pray, what is it that is the greatest thing within the within this prayer? You know, here I come to God, and I'm I'm coming to Him myself. Okay, so I'm there, and I bring Him my my circumstances and my situations and my problems. So they're there, and I'm bringing them to Him. So He is there. Which one of those three things is dominant? Which one of those three things is the greatest? Is it me? Well, God, you should certainly do this for me because I'm the best thing you got going. That that seems to be what the Pharisee seems to think. Or maybe quite often we come to God and we say, God, it's me again, and I'm sorry for that. Here are my problems, and they're huge, and they're momentous, and they're uh, they're enormous. And God, I know it's going to be hard for you to handle these. But I believe that if you try really hard, you might be able to do a couple things with them. And our problems are greater? Or is God the greatest thing in our prayers? Do we come to him humbly and lay our huge problems, huge to us, before a God that is far, far greater? Is God the greatest thing within our prayers? Well, let's consider the other man. The tax collector, verse 13, 
standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Here's this man who is an outcast. He is a cultural and religious pariah. No one even wants him there. He knows he isn't welcome, and so he stands far off away from the others. And in grief-ridden repentance, he begs God for mercy because he knows that he doesn't deserve it. He knows that he doesn't deserve it, but he desperately, desperately needs it. This man knows his failure. He knows his failure. He, he, he sees that he can't do anything about his past sin. He can't mitigate that. He can't fix it. He can't make it go away. He can't even control his future. He just knows that he is a broken mess. In fact, the way that he sees it and the way that he says it here, quite literally, he cries out, God, be merciful to me. And then quite literally, he says, the sinner. He doesn't say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You see, there's no one else there. There's no comparisons being made. And from this man's evaluation, it's just him, his sin, and his God. He isn't comparing himself to anyone else as him being better than them or them being better than him, but rather he is crying out for mercy from the God who is holy and is righteous and is true. That's a perspective we need, isn't it? And yet, and yet in the midst of that, there's got to be a second part of that because we, we don't walk around all the time seeing ourselves as the sinner, as being this, this wretched thing that is, is unworthy for God to have any interaction with. I think the Apostle Paul gives us a beautiful picture, a great example for us on how this dynamic should play out in our lives. Paul's awareness of his need for grace gave him a, a, a very true humility. Uh, he knew undoubtedly that he was saved by grace, just as we read in Ephesians 2 earlier. He saw his sinfulness. He saw that he could not bring anything to the table. But he embraced God's mercy, didn't he? He received God's forgiveness. And because of that, and because he understood the power and the effectiveness of God's redeeming grace, he also knew, as he phrased it in Romans 8.1, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, I know that in and of myself I am the sinner, but I also know this, I am in Christ. I am in Christ and I am forgiven. I am cleansed and I am free and there is now no condemnation for me. Paul knew what Jesus declared there in verse 14, that this tax collector went down to his house justified before God, right with God. But the Pharisee, 
No, the Pharisee didn't. Why is that? Well, he says, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, the guilty sinner who cries out for God's mercy and forgiveness gets forgiveness. But the one who lives under the delusion of the value of their moral and spiritual superiority, they remain condemned. Now, to help us understand why this unexpected result came about, Luke tells us now about something else that happened. You see, these aren't two uh, unconnected or disconnected passages, uh, but really what we read about from verse 15 on helps us understand what we just read about in in verses 14 and before. Uh, Look at verse 15. It tells us that people were bringing their babies to Jesus. They were bringing their infants to Jesus so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. And so here are these, these people are bringing their babies to, to Jesus just for him to touch them. And now to clear up any confusion, Jesus is not here baptizing babies, okay? It doesn't talk anything about that. He is blessing them. He's praying for them. He's touching them. And these babies, they weren't saved by what Jesus was doing, Uh, their salvation would only come later when they came of age and as they responded to God's Holy Spirit, drawing them to himself, just like you and like me. No, Jesus was blessing them. And for whatever reason, the disciples decided that that just wasn't that valuable. And so they began to chase off those who were bringing their children to Jesus. But Jesus, it says, saw it differently. You see, Jesus saw value in something that the disciples didn't see value in. Look at verse 16. It says that Jesus invited them. The disciples are chasing them off, and Jesus is calling them back. And and, and Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Notice this. Jesus is not preaching a sermon to the children. Yeah, I've preached to babies before. They just cry. They don't even sleep. You know, he isn't preaching to them. And really, he isn't even preaching to the parents. He's preaching to his disciples. He's saying, listen, knuckleheads, understand how this works. He's telling us, he's saying, listen, there is something here that you've got to understand that that if you do not receive the kingdom of God like a little child, you will not receive it at all. Now, Jesus isn't saying that Christians should act childish, okay? I know some people think that, but no. He isn't saying that we should be unthinking or or credulous when it comes to our faith in Christ. Friends, we are not called to a blind faith, okay? Well, we are called to a faith that is well-founded. It is clearly established historically, logically, archaeologically. We have great reason to put our faith in God. What Jesus is saying is that we've got to be like little children in that when we come to him, we must be willing to be dependent on God's mercy. We've got to be willing to just depend on him. 
You know, one of my favorite things is holding little babies or some of the little kids, like little Georgie, man. George, little Georgie gives me such great hugs. He's just willing to let you pick him up and just uh, to just hold on. And he just snuggles in. There is this dependence, this vulnerability, this, this willingness to just yield yourself completely that, that is just so native to a child. And that's what Jesus is pointing to. That's what he's saying. When you come to me, you just need to snuggle in. You just need to completely yield yourself to me. You need to let me take care of this because you can't help it all. You, you can't pay for your sin. You can't be worthy. You can just simply receive from me. That's the picture that, that Jesus is painting here. It's the fact that we can't earn it, that we simply need to receive this very good gift from our very good God. So, having heard, and in the midst of processing all of this, let me say this, if you have not yet surrendered yourself to Christ, if you haven't received God's forgiveness for your sin, it, it, let today be your day. Don't put it off. Don't put it off. Don't be fooled by your relative goodness. You're better than other people. I believe it. You're better than me. Not that hard. But none of us will stand before God and pass that judgment. We need his forgiveness, his mercy, his grace because all have sinned and fallen short. Give yourself to the Savior. Surrender yourself to Jesus. Yield yourself to him like a child being wrapped up in his arms. Are you already saved? Then watch out for spiritual pride. Watch out. It's a crafty snare. It's an issue of deception. It's the kind of thing that the moment we think it's not an issue for us, that's when we really need to start getting worried. Ask the Lord. Ask the Lord to show it to you. Ask him to safeguard you with bold, honest friends who will say to you what needs to be said. Ask for a sensitivity to the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you'll be willing to listen and to respond. Ask God to give you a humility that you would stay in that place of complete surrender and of awareness of your need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and for your goodness. We thank you for the cross, for the mercy that you purchased for us there. 
God, we thank you that unworthy as we are, we can come recognizing our guilt, recognizing our sin, that you are merciful and kind and gracious. I pray for any here this morning who have never come to that place of decision that they would choose this morning. That they would surrender themselves entirely to you. And God, for, for all of us, God, that you would grant us the humility Lord, of an ever-present awareness of the fact that we are saved by grace. That you would be exalted. That you would be glorified through the work that you're doing in us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.